I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown. This is Intelligent Speech, my occasional podcast when I talk to somebody who I think is kind of nice or interesting or somewhat profound about a topic which I find interesting or profound. And today we have Kelly Pollock, and she is a podcaster of some repute. She's been podcasting since, what, 2017, which in podcasting terms means that she's been around since the dawn of the printing press. Um, <laughs> she she uh, does, uh, she's firstly a politics podcaster, but now has turned her hand to history. Uh, Kelly, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. First off, this Unsung Heroes, what is the podcast about and how did you come by the topic? I've always been sort of a, a minor history buff. Uh, my, both my bachelor's and my master's degrees are in religious studies, but in specifically in American religion. And so, you know, it's been something that I've sort of, you know, just dabbled in for a long time. Uh, and I had thought about doing a politics uh, podcast and had done that for several years and then wanted to be able to tell these stories in history to sort of understand, you know, how, how we got to where we are in America. And, I, you know, I had actually talked to my husband a little bit about maybe we'd do one together. And I realized pretty quickly as we were talking about topics that what I cared about the most, the stories I most wanted to tell were the stories that people just don't know as much about. So, you know, finding somebody who has this fascinating life, who was so instrumental in American history, and yet they're not in the history books, people don't know their name, you know, and, and sort of finding those people and and those stories and, and being able to give those a bigger voice, uh, just uh, I, I found really compelling. Tell me I'm wrong, right? But when I looked at the titles of your podcast, I said to myself, this person is, she's a progressive, she's left of center. What you're, you, what you're constructing, I would say, is a 360 degree uh, view of American history, which isn't just the one um, about um, hero founding fathers, and then the, you know, the very obvious beats that come afterwards. Now, tell me I'm wrong. I don't think you can. <laughs> no, you're you're quite right. Uh, and in fact, I don't know that there's ever been an episode, I suppose there's been maybe one that's been about just sort of white men. Um, but by and large, the, uh, the episodes that are about individuals have all so far been about women. Uh, and uh, a lot of them have been black women, native women, Asian women, uh, certainly white women as well, though. And then I've done stories about slavery, about uh, Native American displacement. I did a whole uh, month-long series on Asian American and Pacific Islander history. So yes, I'm I'm really trying to 
to to talk about the the people and events that you know are <laughs> what what's being branded as CRT critical race theory now, um, which is really not at all what it is. It's just making sure that we see everything that happens in history, and sometimes those stories aren't pleasant. You know, sometimes they're they're kind of unhappy and. There's some some terrible things that have happened, but you can always see the humanity and you can see resilience and, and then you see sort of how what happened in the past gets us to where we are now. Uh, so, yes, you are absolutely right that I am left of center, uh, but I, I would hope that anyone who's American would find these stories interesting and compelling. And I don't think that you have to be a progressive Democrat to get something out of it. I suppose the question is then, why is there such a gap in, let's say, received perception of American history then, that I can look at your title and then the episodes which you've done, and I go, right, I think I know uh, what, what she's doing. What does this tell us about the standard view of American history? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of American history, and and for plenty of good reasons, uh, has been written about presidents. And, you know, with one exception, every president in American history in 250 years has been a white man. Uh, Of course, we have Barack Obama, Obama, who's an African-American man, uh, who is the the one non-white uh, president, the overwhelming majority of uh, vice presidents certainly have been white men of U.S. senators, even uh, U.S. Congress people. That's changing some now, but these are the people around whom a lot of American history is written, and you know they're very, very, very important to the story of American history. I don't think there's anything wrong with those stories being told, certainly, uh, and there in some ways, easy to write history about because there are written records. So every president has, you know, an entire library devoted to everything they've ever written down, thought, said, you know, so it's, it's sort of easy in a certain sense to get in there, to find the stories, to tell the stories. A lot of the people that I am telling stories about it's a lot harder to find that history. And that's sometimes what we talk about on the podcast when I talk to historians. You know, there, there's one person uh, who I did an episode on, uh, who uh, her name is Julia Chin, and she was actually the, the common law wife of a vice president. Um, most people have not heard of her. And she, uh, she was black. She was enslaved. She was actually his slave. And despite the fact that she had uh, was educated, could read, could write, her writings do not survive to this day. Uh, the historian I talked to thinks that they were probably purposely destroyed by Richard Mentor Johnson, her common-law husband, by his family because they were embarrassed that he'd been married to a black woman. Uh, so, you know, it, it's hard to get at these stories. It takes a lot more work by historians, a lot more uh, sort of digging in, in different ways and different sources to find these stories. And so I, I think that that's a lot, you know, certainly there is a, a current in American history that is just celebrating white men. But I think even, 
even to the extent that people want to to look beyond that, it's just a lot more difficult to to do. And that is a perfect segue on to uh, my next question, which is how exactly do you go about your process? Because your podcast starts off with you delivering a bit of an education or a monologue or framing, it's a much better word, framing uh, the subject. And then you have an expert who then talks about it. So tell us about how you decide who you're going to um, highlight and then how you find your experts. Yeah, so there, there's a bit of a, a mix in, in how I do these. Sometimes I start with the idea for the story. So uh, the very first episode is about uh, women, mostly women, who were back in the States during World War One, and they were contributing to the war effort by knitting. And so they were knitting sweaters, they were knitting gloves, they were knitting socks. That's an instance where I started with the story. I'm a knitter. I love knitting. And so when I heard just like a little piece about that story, I said, okay, I want to learn a lot more. I read a bunch of books on it. I found someone who had written a book on these knitters, contacted her and said, please, please talk to me. Uh, and so that, that was one where I sort of started with the subject. Uh, sometimes I start with an expert that I want to talk to and build the story around them. Uh, so there's a, I'm on Twitter a lot, and there is a group of historians who are, are sort of very present on Twitter. Uh, they go by the hashtag Twitterstorians. Uh, and, and I've gotten to know a lot of historians that way. And when I see people who are saying interesting things, people whose voices I want to have on the podcast, I'll look into what they have written. I will see what sorts of stories or what sorts of people they have written about, uh, read some stuff that they've done, and then contact them and see, you know, can we do this episode? Can we build this around this really interesting subject that you have written on? Uh, usually everyone will say yes, because if you've just published a book, especially an academic press book, you're typically very interested in talking to anyone who will listen. <laughs> so uh, that has been a, a pretty successful way of doing that. And then sometimes it's kind of somewhere in the middle. So I do a lot of theme months, uh, and they often will uh, correlate with, you know, whatever month it is. So uh, February was Black History Month, and so I did a, a whole month of episodes on Black History. And so then I sort of, I've got a, a spreadsheet that goes out for months and in months in advance where I'm planning these things out. And so I said, okay, I know that month is going to be Black History, and so are there topics I'm hoping to, to focus on? Are there people I know who are experts in this, who I want to see, you know, come on? How can I sort of fill in the details there? Uh, and then the final way, uh, actually, is I get a lot of pitches from presses, uh, presses and PR people who are representing books that are coming out on uh, U.S. history, and they will contact me. And, uh, you know, I don't say yes to all of them. I'm pretty picky about how I frame all of this out. But um, but when, uh, you know, I've gotten some... Kelly, are you telling me you don't way. say yes to free books? <laughs> uh, I, I don't say... I am uh, kind of overwhelmed by the number of books in my house. <laughs> So, in fact, when people want to send me books, they say, please just send me the PDF. I can't handle any more paper books. 
Um, but uh, no, I, I certainly don't say yes to everything. You know, I think uh, that was actually one of the problems when I was doing a politics podcast is I got lots of pitches there too. And it's so hard to say no when people are like, this person's running for office and they want to come out and talk to you. And I would end up doing five episodes a week or something and that's unsustainable. So no, I'm, I'm getting much, much better at saying no <laughs> and being judicious about what I put out. Well, I, I tell you what, I, I need to speak to you in, in, in a back channel because um, I've been running my politics show Mid-Atlantic for, for eight years. And I would be lying if I said I had people running for any office, let alone um, dog catcher, who uh, are <laughs> throwing themselves at com- com- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market on my show um, but what i want to do now is is maybe slightly pivot and talk about a couple of the episodes which i listened to which i found absolutely fascinating the first one was the american deutsche volksbund and the New- newark minutemen in the 1930s and i thought this was ki- kind of fascinating and i think really does frame what you do so well because um it's a little bit of american history which um, most americans aren't aware of which was the, the you know the flirtation that some sections of American society had uh, with Nazism before World War II. Some Americans publicly admire the Nazis and envision a fascist America. In February 1939, some 20,000 American Nazis rally in Madison Square Garden. Undivided allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the Republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, American patriots, I'm sure I do not come before you tonight as a complete stranger. You all have heard of me through the Jewish-controlled press as a creature with horns, a cloven hoof, and a long tail. We with American ideals demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. If you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter, first, a social, just, white, Gentile ruled United States. Second, Gentile-controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. 
I found that the, the episode where you talked about the Jewish gangs in New Jersey and Newark who are fighting the Nazis um, was definitely something which was new uh, to me. Yes, I know about Charles Lindbergh and I knew about the, the America Bund and America First. I knew about those, but I didn't know that there were Jewish uh, that there were Jewish gangs in New York and in New Jersey who were actively fighting um, against American Nazis. That clip's from 1939 in Madison Square Garden, but takes all the way back to the late 1930s and set us in the place. Yeah, so uh, there there was a definite uh, push in in the 1930s uh, by, uh, I mean, really, it was by the Nazi Party with ties to Germany uh, to to say, okay, let let's move in on the U.S. Let's see if we can get a foothold. Uh, the you know there are very similar impulses in uh, what's going on in Germany that that were happening in America as well. There's a long history in America of racism, uh, you know, and of anti-Jewish sentiment, and so they were able to find uh, you know definitely people who who wanted to to go along with this movement who were intrigued by it certainly people who had any german heritage um but also you know i think anyone who uh the, the same sorts of things that that trump was tapping into right anyone who was feeling like they were being displaced in american culture by jewish people by african americans you know by immigrants by anyone who's coming in and they're feeling like okay but what about me i i you know keep in mind this is the the 30s right things are not so great economically and and people are feeling that and are thinking okay i need someone to blame this on and the nazi party comes in and uh, they capitalize on that and they were able to draw huge, huge numbers of uh, supporters, and they would do the same sorts of things that were happening in Germany, where they were tapping into the youth and saying, you know, let, let's bring these people up as, as Hitler youth. They were doing that in America, too. So there were like summer camps where they were teaching people, you know, Nazism. And so, uh, you know, obviously the the thing that has always happened in American history is that, that people don't take that sort of thing laying down, right? So Jewish people uh, fought back, and in this case, literally, <laughs> were fighting back. So uh, after Prohibition, uh, the the gangs, in this case, the, the Jewish gangs, were sort of like figuring out what to, what to do next um, after Prohibition, where they had been, you know, running uh, alcohol. And so uh, one of the things that they sort of put put their hand to was fighting back against this uh, Nazi, you know, it, it, it's not an invasion exactly, it's, it's sort of a cultural invasion, um, but, but fighting back, showing up uh, at these, uh, like the, this big thing that happened in Madison Square Garden, um, you know, literally brawling in the streets, uh, and they were in league with the U.S. government, you know, so the the government saying, we don't like what's going on with the, these Nazis, but, you know, how can we sort of keep our hands clean? And it's, you know, sort of getting in bed with the, the Jewish gangsters and, and asking them for help. And it, it's just a, an absolutely fascinating story. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And the other thing which also surprised me was that House of Un-American Activities before the end of the war, it also comes down heavily on any kind of Nazi sympathizers. Generally, it's a, a left 
bashing tool, but actually it was used lightly, but towards the end of the war, actually to damp, tampen down on American uh, Nazism, which was something which I, I didn't know until I, until, until I did the research. But watching that clip, and it is an infamous clip, because it does feel like a Nuremberg rally, but it's Madison Square Garden, and it is uh, 1939. At one point, somebody uh, rushes onto the stage and is hauled off by these uh, brown-shirted Nazis, and then the police do run up on stage. You, you do tell his story on your podcast. Uh, could, you, could, could you kind of flesh that out for us? Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is one of those people who is part of, uh, I mean, essentially they're, they're boxers, so they're, they're Jewish boxers, uh, and they get involved in the, all the, the boxing gyms are uh, run by the, the Jewish mob. And so, you know, he, he's part of this. And uh, yeah, he, you know, is uh, emboldened uh, to, to rush up on the stage. Uh, you know, and, and that takes some real guts, right? Like there's 20,000, uh, Nazis and, and these people are not, um, not, uh, quiet about their support for Nazism. Uh, but, but this, uh, guy, so he's, he's 26 years old. He's a Jewish plumber named Isidore Greenbaum and, and he, he gets up on the stage and he, he pulls down, uh, the microphone. He says, down with Hitler. And, you know, obviously he's rushed immediately and, and taken off the stage. But, um, but you know, he, he thought it was worth it. He, uh, he wanted to, to make that stand and, uh, and he did it. And, you know, I think that's such a, a compelling, uh, it, it, it's one of these instances, like if you're looking back at history to say, like, how do we confront the present and what feels like creeping authoritarianism and things is, is remembering that there were, have always been these people who have stood up to this. And so, you know, without people like Isidore Greenbaum, like maybe that takes off. Maybe Nazism gets a hold in the US. Maybe we're living in a much different country today, but there have always been these people who will go, who will fight back and who afterwards would say, yeah, I would have done that all over again. That was the right thing to do. Mm. It, it is just uh, a, just there was, there's so many clips. And I, anybody who's in the audience that doesn't know about this Madison Square Garden rally, which is twenty thousand American Nazis, uh, you really should uh, type it into YouTube. It, it is it is truly uh, spectacular in terms of a potential divergent history, uh, and you just think you are looking at a Nuremberg rally. But uh, a couple of minutes ago, you did talk about the summer camps, which mm-hmm. there were in America, so fertile. Uh, was the ground um, in the later depression and, and the new New Deal era um, that um, these summer camps were all over America, but Americans didn't necessarily take them lying down. In this New York County, steeped in the traditions of Americanism, the citizenry has been roused by the presence of Camp Siegfried, operated by the German-American Settlement League. Incorporators of the camp have been convicted in Suffolk County Courthouse, and one has been jailed for violation of the state civil rights law. Testimony which the judge forwarded to U.S. authorities rouses an attack on Nazi activities in America by Assistant District Attorney Lindsay Henry, the prosecutor. The uh, conviction in Suffolk County of the German-American Settlement League and its incorporators is notice to Hitler that America intends to shape her own destiny. We want no citizens here who pledge foreign allegiance. 
It was proved at the trial that at the Nazi camp in this county, the swastika flag was saluted, Hitler recognized as their spiritual leader, and the members of the Bund pledged allegiance to him. County Judge Hill, who presided at the trial, said that he had never believed such practices could happen in America, but it did happen here. We say that if these persons prefer some other form of government, let them get out of the United States and stay out. I wonder, Kelly, because this is before the Madison Square Garden rally, which is resplendent with the stars and stripes. There is a massive uh, George Washington um, up on that stage. Do you think that by the time of 1939, uh, like the, the America Bund, uh, which is then going to morph into America first, uh, basically had learned their lesson? Because one of the also amazing things about li- when you watch that address by that uh, German proper, uh, by that German American propaganda um, officer. He says that George Washington was the first fascist as well, doesn't he? So there's a real overt display of American loyalty, and they do sing the stars and the stripes. But then they go and uh, and idolize Germany. Do you think basically that lesson had been learnt? Uh, by then, and that's the reason why uh, we come to Madison Square Garden and uh, Americana is everywhere next to fascist uh, insignia. Yeah, I think it's partly that. I think it's partly to uh, a technique, right? So probably one of the reason reasons that people were sending their kids to these camps was not necessarily because they wanted them to you know, become full on Nazis. But, you know, I, I'm a mom. I've got young kids. In the summer, you're like, what the heck do we do with these kids who aren't going to school? <laughs> so I, I can imagine for for German immigrants or people who are maybe second generation Germans thinking, okay, here's this camp. It looks like a wonderful opportunity for our kids. They will learn German, which is important to us, so they can talk to their parents and their grandparents. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll sing in German, and that all sounds great. Whereas when you're trying to recruit a much larger group, right, you get 20,000 people into a rally, you're trying to reach beyond just your base of people who are interested in all things Germany, right? And you're trying to build a bigger movement. And so I think part of it is, yes, they had, they had learned this lesson and learned that if you want to, you know, sort of reach out to Americans and, and get a large group on your side, you've got to be all about America. But I think, too, it's just sort of a what, what it is that they're trying to accomplish in these different kinds of venues. You know, you, you, you make a really solid point, which I hadn't really thought about. But yes, you know, a, a lot of these were Americans of German descent. And these camps would have been definitely dressed up as helping to keep alive German culture. So you, you can imagine why some parents uh, blindly would, would send their ch- children there. But they were absolutely sponsored by the Nazi party. You know, it, it is absolutely, it's absolutely stunning when you actually look, look at the history. And, and again, this is where your podcast is so good. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that, but I'm going to. It's so good because it, it is those unsung heroes. It's those people who stood up for American ideals of which we've forgotten about because this is not necessarily a comfortable bit of American history which fits in with the traditional narrative. 
No, it's it's really not. And, you know, it's it's things like that that I think nobody nobody really wants to remember. Right. Like in a, in a sense, sort of a <laughs> it's weird to think about good guys and bad guys. And I, I make this point in the podcast when you're talking about gangsters being sort of the quote unquote good guys. But, you know, the the people who are against Nazism won. Right. Like it's because they stood up. It's it's because there was this weird alliance between the Jewish gangsters and the U.S. government, you know, that that we came out on the right side of, of history. Right. You know, the, that we did not become a Nazi state. And so it's much more comfortable. It's much easier for everyone to just like pretend it never happened. Then we don't need to address that history. We don't need to face it. And it's because we don't face things like that, that it can continue to happen. That, you know, Nazism can, neo-Nazism can, can get a hold all over again, and, and we can have things like the Charlottesville rally. So, you know, I, th- I think it's important to go back to these stories, even when they are uncomfortable, even when you want to think, like, how did this have possibly happened on U.S. soil? But if you don't look at it, if you don't study it, if you don't think about it, then, you know, it, it happens all over again. It absolutely does. The last clip I'm going to play is of somebody who's still a hero for for many Americans, but definitely used his status in the 1930s to uh, promulgate um, his theories on, on fascism. At the Manhattan Center, hundreds attend a rally. Tonight's speaker is a famed aviator and American hero, Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh is a Nazi sympathizer, avid opponent of U.S. involvement in the overseas conflict. France has now been defeated, and despite the propaganda and confusion of recent months, it is now obvious that England is losing the war. I believe... The call is to abandon America's friend and ally. And I have been forced to the conclusion that we cannot win this war for England regardless of how much assistance we send. That is why the America First Committee has been formed. Lindbergh and the National America First Committee rail against any involvement in the war. Hundreds of thousands of citizens agree. Since the war began in 1939, Americans have seen and heard about the devastation in Europe. Adolf Hitler's all-out attack on Poland makes the long-dreaded European war a certain. But many are convinced that stopping Adolf Hitler is not worth the sacrifice of American lives. This time America should keep up, and I know I will. I have the slightest idea of European affairs. I think we should stay out of it entirely. And all our efforts should be made to keep out of the fight. Let's do the fight our own battles. Last question about this period of American history. Then I'm going to ask you to tell us some of your favorite unsung heroes in American history. Why do you think Charles Lindbergh, his reputation has been somewhat, I'm going to say whitewashed, but he's still seen as, you know, that, that hero that did that solo flight. And we seem to have forgotten, or as he received American history, seem to have forgotten that in the late 1930s he was an out and out fascist you know he wasn't he he wasn't quite about it at all you know and and was um basically an apologist for for nazi germany all the way up to uh, pearl harbor why do you think his reputation has managed to survive that (sighs) 
I mean, I, I, I don't know for sure. I think it's very easy for people to, to look at people from the past and think, well, they didn't know better, which doesn't make a lot of sense in Lindbergh's case, right? Because obviously lots of Americans did know better <laughs> in the 1930s. But, I, you know, I, I think there's a, a certain willingness to, to not judge people by, uh, by the standards of today. I mean, you know, you look at somebody like Thomas Jefferson, right? And Thomas Jefferson did many wonderful things, too. So, you know, did, did more for this country than Lindbergh did. But Thomas Jefferson enslaved his own children. And yet that is not the thing we talk about when we talk about Thomas Jefferson, right? There are uh, plenty of suffragists, for instance, who uh, were, were did sort of really horrible racist things. And... Uh, threw black men under the bus trying to get white women the votes. And, you know, so I, I think we look back at these people and we want to see Americans as heroes. We want to imagine that uh, that the people whose, uh, whose efforts we appreciate in one thing must have been good in every way. Uh, and we, we sort of want, you know, I said good guys and bad guys earlier, but I, I think there's just this desire among people to, to sort of have good guys and bad guys in stories. And, you know, Lindbergh does this great thing, has this wonderful flight that looks really good for America. And so we want to think of him as a good guy and, and people just don't want to focus on the bad. They don't want to think about, uh, the, the evil parts and they don't, want to have to think in nuanced ways. They they want the story to be much more clean cut than that. Unlike me, obviously, I like looking at nuance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a historian. It's fundamentally um, the, the art of nuance, isn't it, history? You know, how we interpret history, how we interpret uh, what exactly happened in the past. Um, but now, now is the time when I say to uh, the people in the audience, I said it was going to be a little bit slow, didn't I, uh, Kelly, today? But we do actually have um, uh, some people in the audience. Um, for those who've come in late, this is a recording of my occasional podcast, Intelligent Speech, where I just kind of speak to people who I just think are a bit interesting. Right, There is no real rhyme nor reason. But now is the time, if you're in the audience, if you'd like to come up on stage and ask uh, Kelly a question, either about her podcast or about unsung heroes in American history, um, now is your time. I know I've dwelt, uh, I've spent some time talking about the late 1930s and America's dalliance uh, with Nazism and the fact that one of the great untung heroes that uh, Kelly mentions on the podcast is, is a Jewish gentleman who goes to that rally and gets up on stage and pulls out the microphone. And, 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 it, and it's truly um, a, a great spectacle to see because you cannot believe you're, this is actually America because everybody looks like a total Nazi. And he was most definitely an unsung hero. But Kelly, before people summon up the courage, uh, maybe to come up on stage, why don't you give us a quick kind of potpourri of some other unsung heroes that you've uh, covered in your series? Sure. So there's um, one of the very early episodes I did was about uh, a woman named Susie King Taylor. And uh, Susie King Taylor was born into slavery uh, in the South. And uh, she actually escapes and she, I don't know exactly, she like got on a, a boat somehow, escaped to an island, with, is there with Union troops. Uh, and she, her grandmother has taught her how to read. 
And so she is like helping to educate these other escaped slaves. She's 12 years old at the time. And, uh, and then she ends up, she ends up marrying a union soldier and she travels with this company of union soldiers and she's working as like a, a nurse and a washer and a teacher, like all of these things and just this incredible life story. Uh, and, and yet so few people have heard of her, but she wrote an autobiography. So, you know, I could actually talk to a historian named Ben Railton uh, about her story, but I got to actually go read her words about her life, about this incredible story, uh, and then, and then share it with the audience. So I, I think that was, that was one of the people that I just, just loved talking about and thinking, you know, what, what an amazing person. Uh, and then a, a more recent, uh, more recent episode, but also a more recent figure in American history. We are talking today on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and uh, the woman who's considered sort of the the mother of Title IX, Patsy Mink, who was the first woman of color in the U.S. House of Representatives. She represented Hawaii. Uh, I, I got to talk to uh, two women who wrote a biography of her, and one of those two women was Patsy Mink's daughter. Uh, so that was a, a really fun episode that, that we did, and seeing what a just fierce progressive Patsy Mink was, even in the 1960s and 70s, was just, uh, it, it gave me a lot of hope that, you know, people like that can make such a big difference. Great. Great additions to our, to our little podcast show. Aaron Fisher, you're the first person who threw their hand up with Wild Abandon. Um, what's your question or point for Kelly? Yeah, so the America First stuff obviously sort of makes us think about what's going on right now with sort of the modern day America First. And, you know, lots of people pointed at particularly the 2015-2016 um, the Trump rallies as bearing so many of the same hallmarks of, you know, Nazi rallies of the 30s. You know, the sort of cult of personality, the uh, xenophobia based on propaganda about the other and how they were destroying the economy, and destroying the character of the country, and, and you know, just a lot of the same hallmarks. And, you know, your story about Libby was a plumber makes me think about some of the people who actually, you know, protested at some of those Trump rallies and how they haven't received any of the notoriety that I, I guess this guy did maybe just in his own time. Um, and I'm wondering kind of what were some of the things that were different about that moment that led to America first and American Nazism fizzling out, um, that you see, um, you know, this idea, of, um, you know, history rhyming, I just be kind of curious what, what rhyming you're seeing, um, with sort of today's version of America first. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think one difference is that uh, it, it never got as much traction in the first place as, as something like Trump did, right? So, we, you know, I, I suppose there was a moment in American history that someone like Charles Lindbergh could have become president, um, but but didn't. You know, I think I, I hate to be one of those people that pins things on social media, but I think that social media and the internet in general allow these things to pick up steam a little more quickly. So these things were fairly localized, right? These summer camps, you know, weren't everywhere in the country. There were 20 of them and they were in various places, but still it's not something where your kids everywhere would have been able to easily get to them. 
not everybody can get to a rally in Madison Square Garden. And there's radio shows that were popular. And so it's, it's not like, you know, you wouldn't have access to it. But it's not quite the same as getting a live stream of a Trump rally on your Twitter feed as it's happening. So it, it, things are going through a little bit more of uh, moderation before they get to most of the American public. So, you know, a newspaper is maybe going to pick up the story about it, but they're going to put their own spin on it before it gets to Joe Schmo in Canton, Ohio. And so I think that that is a piece of it. You know, I think obviously we've seen social media and the internet is also a great way to fight back against these things. So I, I'm not saying I think they're all bad or something, but I think that that does change sort of the ability for a movement to, to really start going very quickly. I think, too, the Nazis losing World War II in Europe, um, you know, is is a piece of it that, you know, I, would it have been different? Would the America First Nazi movement have uh, have continued to grow if that wasn't the case? I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that having actual boots on the ground in Europe fighting the Nazis, you know, had, it was a big deal and, and had a big difference. And it's a much more uh, kind of theoretical threat now for a lot of people, much less of an actual, you know, people marching in and taking over countries. That's happening too right now. But, you know, I, I think that that, to me, that's one of the sort of major differences we see in these time periods. Thank you for that question, Aram. Uh, Miriam, uh, you're up next. Yes, I, uh, thank you so much. This is fascinating. And actually, there was um, something to some extent interesting, uh, similar in Poland. I'm from, from Poland from um, when it comes to, you know, um, boxing and, and, um, and even criminal element and that criminal element being involved in some kind of political reaction uh, and, and trying to defend the uh, Jewish community. That was something that, that <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a little bit different in Poland, but it's, it's interesting to hear about it here in States. Um, so that one thing. Um, second thing I was thinking about, do you think that the language that, oh, it's something in Europe and we don't want to get involved, is that used today to some extent um, in relationship to conflict in Ukraine? And I was just thinking about it, like sometimes we just use this language to close our eyes to uh, what's going on around the world. Yeah, that that is such a great point. It is absolutely still used today. Uh, you know, I think when there was a vote in Congress going on about should we send aid to to Ukraine, and and people are saying, well, what about starving people in the U.S. too? You know, it's it's absolutely being used in the same way. And I think, uh, you know, I I hope that there's enough uh, recognition in the U.S. today that. We live in a global world and we live in a global economy and these things have an impact, whether or not you care about human rights everywhere, and I would argue you should, that, that these things always come back to us. We, we're not an island that, that's cut off from the rest of the world that, you know, if, if Nazism is creeping up in one place, it's going to creep up in other places. If a Putin is invading Ukraine, he is not going to stop at Ukraine. You know, the, these aren't things that we can just ignore. Uh, so I, I think that that language is happening, um, but, but I hope it's not sort of the, the overwhelming language. Kelly, I, 
I've just discovered this, which, you know, I've done a, a quick little Google. And um, so the clip, which we kind of hung the majority of this program around, is that rally in Madison Square Gardens in uh, 1939. And uh, the unsung hero of the you really featured on, on the episode of that podcast when you looked at the rise of uh, Nazism in in America, um, that hero who rushed the stage is Isidore Greenbaum. And uh, I'm just going to just read this out because this goes to the heart of your podcast and also to what Jenny said. Isidore Greenbaum never intended to run onto the stage. A former deck engineer and chief petty officer, Greenbaum stuck, snuck into the rally, but his anger quickly took hold of him as he listened to Kuhn speak. Speaking years later in 1989, so, you know, this is a really uh, in livable memory, 1989, Greenbaum characterized his actions as, I went down to the garden without any intention of interrupting, but hearing that they talked so much against my religion and there was so much persecution, I lost my head and I felt it was my duty to talk. When asked about the cause of his actions, Greenbaum quickly rebutted, gee, what would you have done? If you're in my place, listen to that son of a bitch hollering against the government and publicly kissing Adolf Hitler's behind whilst thousands cheered. Well, I did it. For his actions in disturbing the biggest Nazi rally in the United States, Greenbaum was sentenced to 10 days in jail, but instead paid a $25 fine. Indeed, uh, an unsung hero, somebody who stood up uh, for everything that was right. Um, in a Nazi rally and uh, reminded uh, wider America uh, about American ideals. Kelly Pollock, tell us a little bit more about your podcast and where people can find it. Yeah, so the the podcast is called Unsung History and you can find it uh, at unsunghistorypodcast.com but you can also find it, you know, all those normal places where you find podcasts. Uh, It's been going for a little bit over a year now. I post episodes every single Monday, uh, and I don't take breaks. So even on Monday, July 4th, you'll find an episode up. Um, And uh, yeah, I think it's there's a little bit over 50, there's like 55 episodes up now. Uh, So hopefully something that would be of interest uh, to everybody will be on there somewhere, whether or not you're interested in every episode I do. Uh, And if you go to the website, there's categories. So if what you're most interested in is Black history, you can find all the episodes grouped together about that. So, uh, yeah, I I plan to continue every Monday for forever. (laughs) Didn't you say that about your politics podcast? (laughs) Um, Probably. I mean, I think the, the politics podcast, there was a... We'll keep doing this at least until Trump is out of office and then Trump's not in office. So <laughs> I, I think, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, my, my politics are not far away from uh, this history podcast. They're not front and center in quite the same way, but it's, it's basically just a, a continuation on the theme. Again, Kelly, thank you for gracing with your presence. And um, everybody in the audience, if you haven't done so already, not only give her a follow, but then go subscribe to her podcast. Mr. F, do you have, did you have something to add? I, I, yeah, I just wanted to quickly say, um, I just realized what Kelly this is. Um, one of the two famous 
Rods, um, from the, from the political podcast, I actually uh, briefly worked with you on your interview with Sean Frame back in 2019, probably. Um, really excited to see what your next project is. And I just wanted to offer a, a recommendation for my favorite unsung hero, if that's okay. The, uh, the, the suffragettes of California and the story that they called the sixth star which was the story of women winning um, suffrage in California is my favorite story that I've ever found that no one seems to know. And it's just made for Hollywood incredible. And um, there's a number of unsung heroes in it, including actually an opera singer um, singing an aria in, uh, in Union Square in San Francisco as part of the, the effort to overcome resistance by the liquor dealers of Alameda and San Francisco counties. It's, it's amazing. And I totally recommend that you Google the sixth star and uh, California suffrage. Excellent. I will do that. I've done several stories about suffrage, but that is not one of them. I'll have to look that up. Thank you. And uh, yes, I, I remember the episode with Sean Frame. So uh, excited to reconnect with you. There you go. Uh, I was thinking as we were talking about uh, unsung heroes uh, that everything people were saying was reminding me of uh, a few years ago, there was a woman who was cycling past the Trump motorcade and uh, flipped him off with the middle finger and then lost her job and then ran for office. Uh, her name was Julie Briskman. But that, that feels like sort of a modern equivalent of, <laughs> you know, sort of saying, I can't be silent right now. <laughs> uh, perfect uh, metaphor uh, to end with, perfect example, I should say. Kelly Pollock, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. Thank you for being our second history podcaster. Don't forget, give her a follow. We want to keep her on the app. That's what we want to do. Is get, get, or give her a follow and download the podcast. Thank you, Dale, for your, for your point. Thank you, Aram, uh, Miriam, and Jenny. And thank you for everybody who's in the audience, especially Victoria, who was the, one of the first people in the room. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.